Well, and turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 9. This morning we're going to be kicking off our Christmas series that we've entitled From Eternity to the Manger. And I can think of no better place to begin this series than the prophecies of Isaiah. You know, one of the great themes of this book of prophecies that was written some 750 years before the arrival of Jesus is that so much of it is about the coming Messiah as a theme. A glorious king who would come to rule God's people in righteousness. A conqueror who would judge evil and bring salvation. And a servant who would come to bear away the sins of the world and would be rejected and crushed in our place so that we may have life. They're prophecies that by and large are about a deliverer. From his perspective, some 750 years to come. And so what prophecies and stories they really are. See, for all of us in the room, it doesn't take long for us to realize that this world is kind of broken, is it not? If you don't believe me, turn on the news. You only have to watch the news to realize we're living increasingly in a broken down house. There's rumors of wars all the time. There's suffering and difficulty all across our earth. The problems of brokenness and wrongdoing and suffering and death, they confront us all the time. Sometimes without, and we can't control anything about it. But if we're honest, sometimes our suffering and our troubles are within. And we wonder who will deliver us. Is there anybody, anybody that can truly help us? Well, this prophecy speaks into that. Because there is someone who can help you. Let's read together Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us... A child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we gather around this prophecy, spoken some 2,750 years ago, Lord, would we hear it this morning and realize it has something to say to each and every one of us in the room. 
oh Lord, would you open eyes? Would you open our hearts? Would it be your voice that all of us hear this morning as we hear of the coming deliverer? Would our lives be changed? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when I was a young boy, my dad, throughout my childhood, had two jobs, only ever two jobs. When I was really young, he was a milkman in the old school days where the milkman actually came around in little trucks and delivered to your house. That was my dad. And I loved going out with him on the truck at the holidays and spending time with him. And then when I was more at school age, my dad became a wholesale flower sailor. So he'd sell flowers to the shops. And so he would go around in his van all day, Monday through Friday, delivering flowers to shops. And in the holidays, I would get to go out with him. And one of the things I realized about my dad as we were driving throughout the day, usually from 4 a.m. till about 6 p.m. plus, um, his, he loved music. So music would always fill the van. And my dad was obviously a man of the 60s, which meant one favorite that I heard over and over and over again was Simon and Garfunkel. Songs like Bridge Over Troubled Water, The Sound of Silence, Homeward Bound, The Boxer, America. I got used to all these songs. I grew up around singing, around harmonies. We learned them all together as a family often because my dad would play them regularly. And even if you have not heard of Simon and Garfunkel yourself because you are the younger end, you've likely heard of some of those songs because they're classics. And yet one song that you're likely less aware of by Simon and Garfunkel is a song called Seven O'Clock News. You know, the construction of this song is simple. Simon and Garfunkel begin singing the famous carol, Silent Night. And they're singing it in the way they always sing things. It's beautiful with wonderful harmonies. It is a sweet sound as they start to sing Silent Night. And then... There is a mock-up of the 7 o'clock news. It's simulated and somebody starts reading the actual news report from August the 3rd, 1966. And so with silent night being sung around them, it begins to dim and a voice comes. And this is what they report, as happened on the day of August the 3rd, 1966. There was a dispute in the House of Representatives today over the Civil Rights Bill. President Johnson originally proposed an outright ban covering discrimination by everyone for every type of housing. But it had no chance from the start. And everyone in Congress knew it. A compromise was painfully worked out in the House Judiciary Committee. In Washington, the atmosphere was tense today. As a special committee of the House Committee on Un-American Activities continued its probe into anti-Vietnam War protests, former Vice President Nixon says that unless there is a substantial increase in the present war effort in Vietnam, the U.S. should look forward to five more years of war. In a speech before the Convention of the Veterans of Foreign Wars in New York, Nixon said that the opposition to the war in this country is the greatest single weapon walking against the U.S. Dr. Martin Luther King says he does not intend to cancel plans for an open housing march in the Chicago suburb of Cicero. It is stated that Cook County Sheriff Richard Ogilby asked King to call off the march and has appealed for the National Guard to be called in if it is held. In Los Angeles today, 
Comedian Lenny Bruce died of what was believed to be an overdose of narcotics. Bruce was just 42 years old. Richard Speck, accused of, the murder of, accused of the murder of nine student nurses, was brought before the grand jury today for indictment. The nurses were found stabbed and strangled in their Chicago apartments. And as this news is being read out, all the while in the background is the song, Silent Night. And what you feel as you hear the song is a certain tension. The news is so tragic, it's so dramatic. There's wars, there's murders, there's suffering, there's difficulty. It's so difficult, and yet the song is so beautiful. And so there's a tension you feel as you hear the song, and it is that same tension, I believe, that you hear as you come to Isaiah 9 and the prophecy we have before us. You see, for the original readers and listeners to this prophecy, they are in great darkness. The seven o'clock news is allowed and well in their lives. They are going through great distress, great trauma, great difficulty. But then the song of Isaiah 9 begins to pierce through that darkness and changes everything. I have two points then this morning. Number one, the dramatic darkness And number two, the glorious light. But I come to this message really just with one aim. And it's that for every one of us in the room, we would realize this morning that hope has come. Into the darkness, a ray of light has come. Hope has come. And he has come for you. Two points then. Here's the first. Number one, the dramatic Darkness. You see, there is without doubt a dramatic darkness that is gathering around these people. Isaiah tells us that these prophecies take place in the, in the year that King Uzziah died. He tells us that in Isaiah chapter 6, and that's significant because King Uzziah had for most of his life been an epic king. He was amazing in the way he behaved. He was amazing in what he brought to the nation of Israel. He was one of the great kings of Israel, akin to David or Josiah or Hezekiah. He had it all going on. When he was set in as king, we read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. In verses 1 through 5, it says, And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. As long as this king sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And for the vast majority of King Uzziah's life, that is exactly what happened. He did indeed seek the Lord with his heart and his mind and his strength. And as a nation then, they prospered. He restored the nation's military power back to its prime. The number of heads of the father's houses of mighty men of valor under Uzziah's leadership, number 2,600. 
Under their command then, there was an army of 307,000 people who could make war. And to help them to that end, Uzziah kitted them out with the best armor that any money could buy. He was victorious over the Philistines, the classic and ongoing foe of the Israelite people at that time. And he expanded their territorial boundaries almost back to what they'd been under the golden age of King David. And peace reigned throughout the land. No one was taking Israel on. They were wonderfully at peace for many, many years. And they got wealthy too. Uzziah's public projects were consistently successful. He built towers in Jerusalem and strengthened the city walls. He built cisterns in the desert and stimulated massive expansion of the nation's agriculture. They had money. They had peace. Life was good. And for three quarters of King Uzziah's life, that was the story. But for the last 13 years of his kingship, the wheels began to come off. He didn't want to seek the Lord anymore. He had become proud. He had become complacent, as reported to us in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 16. He began to exchange the creator for the created. He didn't want to just honor the Lord anymore. He was at peace. He was wealthy. I'm good, thanks. I've got it. Thank you. And the people of God did exactly the same. They started to reject God. They, they enjoyed what he had given them. They enjoyed the blessing of living in the country they had. But they didn't want God. Many stopped even believing in God. They don't want anything to do with him. The reality is, what they were living in during this time is not that dissimilar to our own day here in Australia. Complacency, rejection of God, not interested. I'm fine, thanks. We're at peace, we're wealthy, I'm good. For the last quarter of Uzziah's life, that was what happened to these people. But now we are instructed by Isaiah that the king has died. And throughout the entire nation, there is a deep and sincere sense of great uncertainty, anxiety filling the land. Everybody's outside their houses, chatting in their streets and their closes. Hey, do you think we'll still be wealthy? I mean, things seem to be going like downhill. And the king's dead. What's going to happen to us now? They were concerned about the new king. The new king was called Ahaz. And they knew flat out that he wasn't going to be as good as the old one. doesn't have the gifting that Uzziah had. He doesn't have the strength that Uzziah had. He definitely doesn't want to follow the Lord. He's making all these treaties just with pagan nations. So how's that going to work out for us? And then they were also concerned that there were rumors of wars coming from Assyria. There was also a new king taking place in Assyria. A new king that was actually ambitious for expansion. He wasn't worried about Israel. But he, from Assyria, wanted to conquer Egypt. And the only way to get from Assyria to Egypt is to conquer Israel in between. And the Israelites knew that. What's going to happen to us? If, if he wants Egypt, he's probably going to take us. See, without doubt, darkness was on the horizon for the Israelites during this period of time. And they were right to be anxious. 
They were right to be concerned because having had great peace and great wealth, things were going to turn for them for the worst. Isaiah prophesies about it in chapter 8 when he begins to help them see that there is a coming Assyrian evasion. He tells them up front, it's not going to happen today or tomorrow, but at some point soon, thus saith the Lord, the Assyrians will come for you. They were right to be concerned as he prophesies what will happen to them, how they will be taken into captivity, how it will be difficult for them, how they will be exiled from the land. In chapter 8, verse 22, as a crescendo to all that season's going to bring, we read, and they will look, they being the Israelites, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. He prophesies that what is coming is your greatest horrors. You will not be at peace. You will not be at wealth. You will be in captivity. You will be in exile. This is a dark season coming. And what they begin to hear is a season coming that is akin to the seven o'clock news. It's going to be dark. It's going to be difficult. And so chapter 8 finishes with absolute gloom. And God could have left them there. As I said before, they've all rejected God. They don't want anything to do with Him. So is God wrong then to effectively say, okay, then have a life without me? They have rejected God and God could have left them there in the darkness they are succumbing to. But in mercy and in grace, He doesn't. And that's point two, the glorious light. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light Sean. My friend, stunningly and abruptly, the prophet begins to sing. And he begins to sing of a light shining into the darkness, a light of hope, a hope that quite clearly seems to come into Galilee of the nations. There will be an arrival in Galilee which will change the nations. Something is coming. That will change everything. In verse 22, we're hearing about darkness and gloom. But something is coming that there is hope in. A change. A bringer of light. And the fruit of that light, well he tells us in verse 3, the fruit of that light will be surprising and wonderful joy. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy They rejoice before you as with joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. My friends, please note once again and be reminded, this was written before these events took place. But he's writing as if they've already happened and been accomplished, isn't he? He's writing as if to say, this will happen. And he knows it's going to happen because he tells us in verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This will happen because of God. It's not dependent upon people. It's dependent upon the power and might of God. He will do this. 
And the fruit of the sending of this light will be wonderful and profound joy. He likens this joy at the end of verse 3 to the joy of a harvest. It's the metaphor of a harvest. And then he likens it to the joy of plundering a nation. He explains it's a bit like at the end of a harvest. I grew up in a farming community. Harvest was a great time. And so at the end of harvest, when everybody's finished and they're just like, yes, we made it. You know, that's the joy that he's talking about here. Or when your nation is being taken on by another nation and they're pushed out by your army and you're able to plunder their nation as a result. The joy of that, with this peace, the survival, and look how we've been blessed. He's describing great joy that will come about as the fruit of this light. Alec Motier in his commentary says, These contrasting spheres express every sort of joy ever known. So they do. It will be a happy place because of this light that is to come. Ray Ortland Jr. in his commentary says, What we see here is a bonfire of God's grace. I love that illustration. A bonfire of God's grace. It is the flames of God's grace. They were in darkness and gloom, but a light is coming that will change everything. And the effect of it will be joy. Well, how is this joy going to come? What is this light which he talks about? Well, John Oswald, in his commentary, says this verse sets the stage for the most astounding event in human history. And so it does. How will God intervene to rescue his undeserving people in the midst of their deep and dramatic darkness? Here's how. Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. How then will God deliver and rescue and redeem a people? How will he set all things right? How will he bring light to where there is darkness? A child. A son. A child that will be born into the back waters of Bethlehem. A child who will come and change all things. As Isaiah points us to the very first Christmas, some 750 years in the future from his perspective. He points to the coming of a child, a son, who will change everything. Ray Ortland then once again in his commentary says, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. His answer is Jesus. Isn't that incredible? His answer is a child, a son. Well, make no mistake, this is no ordinary child for which we are pointed to here. His birth has already been outlined for us in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This child is to be born to a virgin. And this child is to be born to a virgin because he is going to have a unique and special father, namely God himself. For this child... It's going to be the image of the invisible God. This child, it says, in him, the fullness of God will dwell bodily. 
This is the second person of the Trinity that will now clothe himself in flesh and come to earth on a greatest rescue mission ever told. This child is God's son. This child in him, the fullness of God, dwells bodily. And Isaiah tells us that this child that will no doubt grow into a man will have four distinct titles. All of which tell us something about this child that is to come. Look with me again at verse 6. It says, And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. You know, a counselor in the Hebrew setting is simply one who is able to make wise plans and then rule them to fruition. It's one who's able to make plans and then has the ability to get it done. Well, this one that we are being pointed to here knows all things. He knows all things and sustains all things and understands all things. And he has the power to bring all things to fruition. The best ideas that you've ever heard of have always come from him. He's also mighty God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. As Isaiah tells us in chapter 40, again through a prophecy, this one to come is the one who marks off the heavens with the breath of his hand. This is the one who can hold all the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. This is the one who breathed out the stars and names them and numbers them and sustains them and not one is missing. You worried about Assyria? You worried about Rome? You worried about Babylon? Make no mistake, they're like dust on scales before him, a drop in a bucket before him. For he is mighty God, and he is everlasting Father, he tells us. Quite literally then, what everlasting Father means is a benevolent protector. He will rule and reign over his people with the tender, loving affection of the best father you could ever imagine. That's how we reward. Not only with power and might and not only with understanding, but profound love towards his people. Everlasting father. And he will also be prince of peace. Because he alone would have the ability to resolve the holy hostility that exists between God and each one of us because of our sin and because of our rejection of God himself. He's the Prince of Peace. You see, the reason why there's so much darkness in the world today is fundamentally because of us. In Romans 3.23, we read, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a harsh reality, but it's a true reality. Each and every one of us, we haven't grown up just thinking, all I want to do in my life is honor God. I want to love Him with all my heart and all my mind and all my strength. None of us have instinctively and naturally done that. No, what we've done is we've gone, you know what? I really like this creation that He's made, and I'm going to give myself to that passionately and wonderfully. And if you wouldn't mind just minding your own business while I get on. That's what we've really done. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible says because of that, we're actually cut off from God. Because of our rejection of God, we're cut off from Him. There is a chasm between us that we're never, ever going to be able to leap over. You can never make it right with God by yourself. Darkness fills the land. Seven o'clock news is playing everywhere. How, How are we going to be redeemed then? How do we get back right with God? Well... For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. 
And this is what that son says in John 3.16. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This son, this child was coming to earth on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He was coming after us as a people to deliver us by his grace and for his glory, to deliver us from our sin so that we could be forgiven of our sin and to deliver us into a relationship with God so that we could be reconciled to him. And he tells us that when we put our faith in him, we're not just made right with God, but he adopts us into his very family. We become a son or daughter of God himself where he tells us, I will look after you like an everlasting father. I will care for you. I will aid you. I will help you in all that you go through in your life. And then he delivers us by his grace one day into an in heaven that is our eternal home. You see, for all Christians, the best is yet to come. But the only way to get there is to be delivered. We need a deliverer. And we have a deliverer. His name is Jesus. That's what the child came to do. This wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this prince of peace. He came to deliver us. See, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well, my friends, I simply want to encourage you. Hope has come for you. There is a hope for you. And his name is Jesus. You know, as Isaiah prophesies, this prophecy, it's 750 years before this child and before this son is born. And yet the exact date and time when Jesus was born, in world history, there's never been a better time for that to actually take place. See, in the year that King Uzziah died, which is 750 years before the arrival of Jesus, Not far away from Israel, there were two brothers that started to put the foundation into a village. And that was a village that would go on to be called Rome. Well, this village would become a city. This city would become a republic. This republic would become an empire. And as the Romans became an empire, they changed so many things. Greek became a language that so much of the known world spoke. There was a common language that would be used around the globe. And the Romans, if one thing they're good at, they built good roads. They built roads. Transport systems changed all over the world. So there's a common language taking place and there's roads so that you could go out, so that you could move around the world in a way that they had never been able to do before the arrival of the Romans. There would never been a better time in world history for a deliverer to come and to give their lives away as a ransom for many, knowing that it will be now that this message can go out. So 750 years after this prophecy, in a backwater of Bethlehem, a baby is born. The deliverer. And the timing was perfect. And maybe your arrival today to hear this message is another example of the perfect timing of God. Maybe you thought you were just coming for a baby dedication. (laughs) 
Maybe you saw us online and you thought, well, today sounds like a good day to come. Maybe a friend invited you. I don't know. Well, maybe it's all by divine plan because God in his sovereignty wants to tell you about a son that came for you. My friends, God so loved the world. He so loved you that he gave his only begotten son so that if you believe in him, you would not perish. You would have eternal life. You would know the joy of being delivered from your sin. You'd know the joy of being delivered into a relationship with God. You'd know the joy of being delivered into a reality that heaven is your home. I was 21 years old when I made that decision for myself. Maybe today is your day. He loves you. And so if today you hear his voice, you hear this and you think, I think this is true. I want to encourage you, even at the end of this service, talk to somebody about that. Come and talk to me or any one of the guys that brought you or just somebody at the church. Just say, tell me more about it because we'd love to pray with you. And your life, you'll know deliverance in a way you simply don't right now. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today's a great day to be redeemed by God himself. If though you're here today and you are a Christian, You do already know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, which is obviously the majority of us in this room. There's just one word I want to draw your attention to as I conclude this message. It is a word that comes twice in the start of verse 6. And it is the glorious word, us. For to us a child is born. To us a son is born. Is given. See, it's so easy to go through Christmas, as we should, thinking it is one big communal event. And there's a joy in that, isn't there not? As we go to parties, as we enjoy street events, as we go to Christmas carols, there's just events that we just all enjoy in community, and there's a place for that in Christmas. But I want to encourage you as Christians to make sure this Christmas you also personalize what he's done for you. Because this is the moment where Isaiah not only points us to Jesus, but he's he's addressing you. God is getting eye contact with you as a Christian. For unto you a child is born. Unto you a son is given. Brothers and sisters, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you know afresh this Christmas of his passionate and personal love for you? Because it's right here in the text. He so loved you that for you, a child was born. And for you, a son was given. Would that truth amaze us? And would we give all the glory to him? That he sent his son for you and for me. Let's pray. Lord, it's staggering to me that we can gaze at a prophecy written some 750 years before the events happened. And yet we can gaze wonderfully at you. Lord, I thank you for coming and dying in our place. I thank you for sending your son. 
Lord, you could have left us. You could have left us with the seven o'clock news singing in the background. But instead, you introduced the song of a lamb, the song of a son that would change our lives. Lord, thank you for delivering us. And Lord, I pray that there would not be any individual in the room that would leave today unaware of what you've done for them. Because you came after them. He who is mighty has done a great thing. Would we personalize that? And would we be lost in wonder as a result of what we see? And may all glory go to you. In Jesus' name, amen.